Good evening. Um, I'm Kathleen Neal, and I'd like to welcome you to Poetry and Conversation, which is an ongoing series of readings and conversations with poets here at the Pratt. We're very happy that you've joined us tonight, and we hope that you will also join us on Tuesday, July 29th, for an evening of poetry and discussion hosted by Little Patuxent Review in celebration of the release of their summer 2014 issue. Four writers, Joseph Ross, Alan King, Michael Brokos, Tafisha Edwards, will be reading a selection of original work published in Little Patuxent Review and other journals, followed by a panel discussion on the role of small press journals in the career of poets. So that should be very interesting. Um, another little thing just before we get started, um, if you'd like to keep up on any upcoming events, poetry related, um, coming to the, our series or anything here at the Pratt related to poetry, we have an email list that we're constantly trying to add to, and there's a list at the back, you know, afterward if you'd like to sign up for that. And tonight, we're all very excited to host three po poets, all Kundaman fellows, with award-winning first books, read and talk about their work. But I'm going to step aside now and let Shailene introduce the poets. Thank you. Oh, hi, I'm Shailene. I'm just going to do a brief introduction before each of our three poets reads, um, and Sally is going to begin. Um, Sally Wen Mao is the author of Mad Honey Symposium, Alice James Books, 2014, which was the winner of the 2012 Kinnereth Gensler Award and a Publishers Weekly Top 10 Most Anticipated Poetry Books of Spring. Her work has been anthologized in the Best American Poetry 2013 and is published or forthcoming in Guernica Gulf Coast, Haydn's Ferry Review, Indiana Review, Puerto del Sol, Quarterly West, Third Coast, and West Branch, among others. A Kundiman Fellow, she holds a BA from Carnegie Mellon University and an MFA from Cornell. In her poems, she delves fearlessly into a richly sensuous region of primary experiences, remaking our perceptions by doing mind-blowing things with ideas and sounds. Alice Fulton writes, Reading her is like taking hits of pure oxygen. I am energized by audacious splendors of language coupled with a stunning intelligence and depth. Please help me to welcome Sally Wen Mao. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out. Um, this is all of our first time in Baltimore. Wait, wait, Eugenia, you've been here, haven't you? <sighs> of course. Um, <laughs> so um, I'm going to start with a poem from Mad Honey Symposium. So um, just to introduce us, we are, um, so we've called our book tour, um, The Honey Badgers Don't Give a Book Tour, and Book is Censored. Um, and, and the honey badger is kind of our totem animal because it's um, because it does a lot of really stupid things um, in the name of um, in the name of consumption. <laughs> um, so um, and and this book, Mad Honey Symposium, a lot of it um, is kind of driven that by that impulse. Um, so this poem is called "Searching for the Queen Bee." Outlast. 
outgrow, outshine, all midnight, all opposition. For sweat and fists don't silence you, but the gridded landscape does. Go ahead, run to the garden where childhood sinks inside the lake's lips. Wash your face, its dark adult spot. Believe in the dawn behind the giant tree, the light's torn dress, redress. If you're tired of fighting, how do you find the queen? She's all appetite and a plume in runny regalia, so moist you, ra- you latch on. Life is not dear unless coveted things are claimed. The joy of exploding queens crackling in jaws, tougher than goat and and sweet thorns. Honey sticks to horse manes, rat hide, pigeons electrocuted on fences, damp newspapers, headlines explaining cruelty, cruelty. Honey drips from glaciers. May you never sleep, badger ever droning, ever hunting. Um, So the other two girls are really good at preparing for these kind of readings, and I'm the one who just, like, doesn't give a... (laughs) give anything. I'm the one who just, like, whatever... I'm just going to sit here in the corner while you guys are practicing. And then, of course, you guys decided to put me first um, as punishment. <laughs> um, okay, so this one is called... Uh, so I'm going to read a section from a long poem called Migration Suite. And it's um, it's the 10-page like long-ass poem in this book. Um, but I'm only reading you one section, merciful like that. Um, Okay, so it's called Land's Pool. Half-dressed in shutters. The girl could be me, but it's my mother. Tonight she thirsts for bells, gnaws bitter melon, sings midnight in Moscow. Ambrosia, radios crunching throats, Across the red sorghum, the the country eating her alive. Boots, neon jacket, red shoestrings, and all. Outside her palanquin, a pulmonary coaxing. Singing orbiters, hooves can't stir and horses wait. Amaranth and dead earth swarms with foxfire. The train rumbles by without her. She ducks inside the theaters where soldiers dressed as bridegrooms come at her. The gag in her throbs bigger. She's certain she may be the hostage they're looking for. She's thinking if she'd just surrender, they'd move her, mar her, marry her across the land of blind sharpshooters through the airtight sockets of winter. As long as dawn breaks, liquid as lucre, and she can catch that last express home. As long as she can sprint through sorghum, taller than any horizon she has known. Um, 
Edgar Allan Poe, like I was really into him in middle school. I I like I like wrote an entire um parody of the Raven once, like in seventh grade, um for this like Korean RPG game that I was addicted to. Anyway, that has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> um Okay, so this this one is called Flight Perils. One Love the flightless, learn the dirt, live to stomp. Once I read the story of a girl who loved a flightless creature. Lita, hurry and run, for your swan is waking. In the cool willow, his fitful grip surprised her. Her story bled in it, into its cloth. All the secrets in the dirt built a bridge between enemies. What you need now is more than love. At times, I tromp the earth, searching for precision. As the sediment flies away, I trust that the worms still live here. The suicidal swan walks into the tracks. Two, night swallowed all the juncos on Beacon Street. The second death in my childhood was a crested eagle snagged in cannon netting as it left its airy for the first time. I lived on this street. Overhead, a dozen juncos sawtoothed over Marquisette. The flock struck in an electrical storm. When I picked one up, its plume showed no signs of lightning, though its humorous bone shattered to bits one touched. Did they mistake the road for a stream boiling away into the cloudy sea? Three. If I suffer, let it be in high places. What then is the opposite of human, of girl? It swoops, flies, retreats, swift arc in the air, airy to archipelago. Once I strung a wire from my roof to yours. I walked that steel thread with no parachute, just an umbrella, the wind threw a fit, and I fell. Carry me over the mountain, blindfolded, dear one. The altitude hisses in my ears. Carry me on the palanquin. Carry me on the palanquin of your body. Leave me on the silent ridge where the ruins, with the ruins of a jet crash. Metal wing hangs off its socket. The radio signal is broken, and so are my arms. My hair is burning down, but what I see surprises me. Behind dread, a lighthouse. Behind mourning, a weather vane. Behind the trees, a tiny skiff departing. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, okay. Um, so I'm going to read you a sonnet. Um, Couple of sonnets uh, for uh, for Kudryavka. So, um, do y'all know like about that space dog? Everyone knows about that space dog, Laika. The it's that it's that little dog that they you know sent to space. Um, and and before Laika was discovered and like, um, and and you know before it became famous, basically its name was Kudryavka. So um, these are sonnets for Kudryavka. 
Um, so this one is called Kudryavka before Sputnik. Toast to you, dog, for your solar-powered or organs. Your smelt muscles sing. The slag on your bones cannot die on this earth. From dumpster to rocket ship, the true rags to riches tail, and it's not even happening to a human, not even happening in America. World famous gutter sucker, tonight, be, tonight you give birth to a new name, Laika. Before any dog impregnates you, you will shoot off into the galaxy. Mammal as asteroid, ultimate runaway. Who are you whose kismet matches the greats? A martyr for thought like Socrates. Will you drink the hemlock of space? You, Laika, original cosmonaut. Um, the next one is called Kudryavka's Sobriquets. Zushka, little bug, stray mutt covered in snow. How many tulips have you eaten since spring? How many cabbages drenched in ruined milk? Limon chic, little lemon. As a stray, you knew hunger so well you wrecked your own mouth. In Moscow, they, they squeezed lemons over your coat. The seeds stuck to your damp fur, and the juice disinfected you. As you licked your own neck, the taste sang through your tongue. You howled and howled, and it opened your flesh, and you were made invincible. Laika, Barker, you are that dog whose face shined in red paint. You are that dog they renamed so they can silence you again. I'll just read um, three more. Um, I'll just read the rest of these Laika poems. Because, <laughs> um, like, I mean, it's, it's so mind-blowing, right? You, I got really obsessed with this dog. Um, and then I got my professor really obsessed with this dog. And then, and then there was this, like, um, Korean rapper who came to my school, and he rapped about this, this little dog. And I was like, okay, well, clearly I'm not the only one <laughs> with an obsession. Um, <laughs> Kudryavka in the capsule. If your fate were fairer, you'd have traveled the world on tour. Tongue wagging out, you'd have felt the Sirocco's squirming over your fur, the waters of clear brooks softening it. You, you could have, you'd have tasted the meats of animals you could never outrun. You'd have chased them anyway across mesas, escapes, the reindeer. You'd have gnawed their fuzzy antlers. Gentle admirers would pet you, take you in their arms. But now, nothing sheaths your spinning aorta. The clock runs faster than your legs at their hungriest. You are strapped to drill into oblivion, impale it like a breathing rapier. Kudryavka, liftoff. Shuttered in hot light and oil-seared stars, you alone carry the weight of planetary anxieties. The heat rises and your skeleton quivers. A Vatic sing-song proclaims onslaught. You panic but eat. It is a sticky gel and not the mutton you were fed yesterday. 
but yesterday is extinguished, and even today and tomorrow have kidded you, escaped. You are alone with your breathing. Your lungs plump. You cannot understand the machine of your solitude, its axles, its weights. Outside, there is the timber galaxy. You wake to terror and lumber fast into the death that's at least known. And um, just one more, and um, keeping with my like honey and bee and whatever honey badger obsession. Um, this one is called "On the Sorrow of Apiary Thieves." Beekeepers warn. The good honey's gone. All of it's been harvested. What's left is chaff. Summer's dead matter. Give up, intruders. This season, the bees won't wake, and the honey of their sleep is nauseous. It is said that when bees can't migrate, they hibernate in a dragnet of bodies around the queen, rotating outward for warmth, so no one dies. But somewhere in the outskirts. A worker bee might fall into a coma. Envision a lighthouse of nectar, daisy stamens trapped in royal jelly. She must have dreamt this, drifting further from the nucleus of spit warmth and swaying. There is no place for dreamers like her in a complex system, metropole of honeyless apiary. Its deadbeat machinery. I can't explain my trespassing with something simple. Like the yen for honey, or humectants for a lady's quondam queendom, the hive breathes all of the wishes I don't have. Empty haven, lantern of viands. I almost miss the way the searchlights once chased me past the topiaries, footprints striating the damp loam along the knoll toward the bees. What quiet! What hum! This time I take only the frozen ones, those harmless luminaries whose heat mends the snow. Thank you. Thank you.、Um, okay, Kathy Lynn Che is going to read next. Kathy is the author of *Split: Alice James, 2014*, which was the winner of the 2012 Kundiman Poetry Prize. A Vietnamese-American poet from Los Angeles and Long Beach, California, she received her BA from Reed College and her MFA from New York University. She has been awarded fellowships and residencies from Poets and Writers, the Fine Arts Work Center at Provincetown, Kundiman Hedgebrook Poets House, the Asian American Literary Review, the Center for Book Arts, and the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council's Workspace Residency. A founding editor of the online journal Paper Bag, she is program associate for readings and workshops East at Poets and Writers, and manager of Kundiman. She lives in Brooklyn, New York. Probing the trauma of her own past and her family's, Kathy Lynche's poetry is remarkable for its precision and fierce honesty, for its powerful images and eloquent reticence. Poet Yusuf. 
Comunica writes of her work, the deep push-pull of silence and song become a bridge, and here we cross over into a landscape where beauty inter interrogates and we encounter a voice that refuses to let us off the hook. Please help me to welcome Kathy Lynn Che. Thank you for that beautiful introduction, and thanks, y'all, for coming. Um, so this is our first time in Baltimore, and I didn't know what to expect. I, only, I haven't ever watched The Wire, and um, I know everybody is angry at me now. But, um, um, but we did uh, walk around Artscape yesterday um, really late, so uh, we got to catch the remnants of it. And um, hi, Molly. Yay. We met in New York. <laughs> but... Um, also, uh, Sally and I went out and got some excellent crab cakes. So, um, yay, Baltimore, where um, we feel very lucky to be here. Also, when on our way to um, the reading, we saw a, uh, a poster with our faces on it, and we kind of freaked out, like, like um, um, you know, we we've never seen our faces on a. Uh, you know, on a library before. So we're just, we just feel very fortunate and lucky that y'all are here for, to, um, also we're on book tour. Did we mention this? Like this is our, um, we've been on book tour for a week now and this is our, I don't know, fifth or sixth stop and we're taking off for New York again tomorrow and we're, we're just going to continue on in our DIY fashion. So, um, um, I, I I made um, flags, <laughs> so I, I'm hoping that they're they're um, that this reading will work out. Um, um, so my book is about. Um, thank you so much for the introduction. That was a great kind of like gave context, which I love. Um, um, my book is about tr varieties of trauma. So you're in for a real treat. Um, <laughs> So um, my first poem is um, called The Future Therapist Asks About Rape. And I don't, th this was before I ever had a therapist, so I had to imagine one. This morning, I watched a woman shatter the thin ice on the pavement. I made the bed, tucked in the sheets, and in the window, I saw reflected my mother's face. Men in my life walked in and out of the rooms, tramping snow. My mother shushed me, and my father, with his powder cake hands, pulled up a pair of clean black socks. It isn't what you think. My father was a soldier. He taught me nothing about men. They're an empty barrel you're not supposed to look into or a gun you dismantle to try to see its parts. So um, in addition to trauma, I, I think like I'm trying to write about, I was trying to write about trauma, desire, and working through those, um, uh, those ideas. So I've never read this poem, I don't think, aloud. So this is really exciting because they, they, my, my tour mates are probably hungry for new poems, so um, I'm doing it for them, and for you guys too. Um, on McDougal Street. Dust rises from the construction on the street. A man wipes away his sweat 
with the back of a hand, his shoulders tense with muscle and taut noonday sun. I want to remove that shirt, kiss his dark arms, that wife beater tan, suck in the aroma of his hair, his sweat, the smell of work, the smell of my father and oil on the machine shop floor. My father could pulverize me and my mother, but never did. He carried a gun for eight years and never told me about it. Here, the lovers hold hands, and there, my father squeezed my mother's so tight, her fingers bled. See what they do to you, she said. Jai theme, that jai roi. I want to tell her that my heart is open, though it's closed up, that one morning a door swung out. And inside me were waves that radiated out and through the city. My love that day was big as New York. I don't want to go on. That's that's my um, that's my one hopeful poem in the book, which is not that hopeful, but it has you know an expression of desire. Um, so I find that hopeful. I, I mean, there's. Ho I mean, hope comes in many ways. I suppose, like, um, I think the act of writing is hopeful, and the act of writing down things that are difficult says to me that I mean, it's not only just a means of survival, but it's a means of um, um, asserting oneself at, into the world. And I think that that makes me feel like, despite the um, trauma that I write about. It, it is um, ultimately one that is not dark, but, you know, dark and light. So I have notes on here, crab cakes, trauma design. I've talked about everything but one thing. Um, we're all um, poets of Kundiman, and that it's an Asian-American poetry um, organization, and we have a retreat that happens every summer, and I met Eugenia in the city, but also at this retreat, and I met Sally, and it's a lifelong friendship that I'm, I cherish, and I'm, um, I'm thrilled to sort of be in a car with them for the next week, so, okay, story. If every cell inside my brain is replaced after seven years, then why can't I excise this? He moved his tongue into my mouth as I sat in my Catholic skirt. The Listerine and smoked cigarettes, his tongue like a slug that turned in my mouth. My stories an arrow pointing back to when he curved my palm around his sex. My child hand has not grown since then. My story is a series of pent-up men. I lie with them and suck back my tongue. In my chest is a neon portrait of the sacred heart. It lights up every time I am touched. So, um, the sacred heart, in the same way that Sally has, um, the honey badger, the honey bee, the mad honey, the um, 
Leica, the, these other figures that are kind of central images to her book. Um, the Sacred Heart is sort of my central image. It's sort of, you know, if anybody, I was raised Catholic, so it's very, um, it's, it is uh, an image of a bloody human heart um, encircled in thorns, on fire, bleeding. But it really is to me a, a very human and yet divine exalted suffering. So there's like something transformative yet very, very grounded about it. So um, I'm going to read, according to my notes, I'm going to read, well, four more poems. Okay, so um, my next poem is um, a story that I've heard maybe 100 times in my life, maybe 200, and it's, it's my mother's story. And there, my mom telling the story about the kitchen table is sort of what started me writing in the first place. So my mother still dreams of the war. Her great uncle was kidnapped when she was five. And the rumors of the Viet Cong prevent her from ever returning to that place where the wraiths rose from the paddies as she walked alone to school. In sleep, she can't erase her great uncle's image, his kind eyes and hair cropped close. In the summer, soldiers hid in the ditch just outside her home. She knew them from their distinct smell. Mui Mi, she called it, laughing, that American scent of mosquito repellent and unbathed skin that she described as the smell of something burning. She was 13 when the soldiers touched her hair, clipped the strands between their fingers as if to cut them, and perhaps some piece of her too. Soon after, a village girl was raped by a soldier in a dried-out gully. She was airlifted to the field hospital. My mother doesn't say it could have been me, but instead, the girl lived, but could never marry. So I think something very significant um, in working through um, my mother's story is that um, she doesn't really do, a, she, when she tells it, she doesn't lay blame very much. I think it's just a fact, a very important fact of her life. And um, I think that, I think about the ways that um, the people who have changed her life, these soldiers who probably were, um, you know, very young, um, are in many ways, you know, the consequences were there, but I, I still try to um, conceive of people who do things to each other as sort of um, just very whole and very human. Um, and I think um, that despite that, the book very much contends with the, the real consequences of you know these small um, military actions or these large military actions that have these ripple effects over time. Um, So that story is um, when my mother was separated from her mother for the first time, and that kind of sent, set off this ripple effect for the rest of her life. And this is sort of a poem that is a companion to that one. My mother, upon hearing news of her mother's death, 
She opened her mouth, and a moose came out, a donkey and an ox, out of her mouth, years of animal grief. I led her to the bed. She held my hand and followed. She said, Jet Roy, and like that, the cord was cut, the thread snapped, and the cable that tied my mother to her mother broke. And now her eyes red as a market fish, and now she dropped like laundry on the bed. The furniture moved toward her, the kitchen knives and spoons, the vibrating spoons. They dragged the tablecloth, the corner tilting in, her mouth a sinkhole. She wanted all of it, the house and the car too, and the flowers she planted, Narcissus and Huamai, which cracked open each spring. The sky, she brought it low until the air was hot and wet and broke into a rain. The torrents like iron ropes you could climb up, only I couldn't. I was drowning in it. I swirled in. I leapt into her mouth, her throat, her gut, and stayed inside with the remnants of my former life. I ate the food she ate and drank the milk she drank. I grew until I crowded the furnishings. I edged out the organs, her swollen heart. I grew up and out so large that I became a woman wearing my mother's skin. And I have two more poems. And this one's um, about place and a little bit about desire and longing. So San Francisco poems or letters to Jack. And the Jack is actually Jack Spicer. Um, who uh, lived in the in Berkeley, and he's one of my favorite poets. And he he has a funny quote about how um, poems should not be one night stands. They should, you know, like um, they should talk to one another. So um, this poem has several parts in it, and he is a poet who believes that poems within a collection or anything like that they they all are in conversation, and that's very much true of how I con conceived of this book as poems that talk to one another. I feel everything discreetly, the roar, the tumult, a low incandescent sky. The rocks jut nakedly, barnacled and painted in shit. My love is a speck flickering. The wind just blows and blows. The waves are falling on their faces. In the distance sit two lovers full of holes waiting to be wrung out. Here the church bells chime through the streets. A trolley rolls past with a strange sense of dragging. I want to be left alone like a librarian with secrets to keep. 20 kinds of grief arranged from darkest to lightest. There is a hush, bright and low. From here, I can see the rain's like streets, the points where they meet, the fluorescence of gold, red, and green, the variant shadows where have kept you, around corners, in bars, in sudden light that blisters into flurries of snow. My heart is small. 
and I want it like a star to collapse, like a red handkerchief folded and refolded into a magician's right breast pocket. And this is my final poem, and it is also in parts and that talk to one another. And it's called Home Video, and thank you so much. There are flowers on this bed, an elbow planted by an ear. No, you cannot touch this breast. No darkness, no shatter, and no, no pendulum. The past is a blood clot lodged inside your lung. In the living room, shapes move across the wall. You are wearing a thin dress. You watch Beetlejuice while he moves his fingers over your white underwear. You watch the screen and see his fingers. Your brothers are in the room, but they never seem to notice. Behind the lens is the father. Mother offstage calls, Gangai nai. On the phone, Gangai thui, which means this girl, this girl's rotten, this girl likes swollen fruit. She cuts off the bruises, she teaches me to cut. He rises to the surf. It detonates with a shearing crash. Inside each wave is a barrel. In each barrel is a vacuum that can suck you in, spin you round, snap your bones if you tumble the wrong way. If I say I've been touched, if I say by my cousin, then a neighbor boy, and then another, if I say no, I didn't want it from my first boyfriend, there was blood and membrane, and he didn't believe me. If my body can be a box, if I can close it up, if it has to be open, who will touch me again? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, and Eugenia will be our third reader. Um, Eugenia Lee is the author of Blood, Sparrows, and Sparrows, Four-Way Books, Fall 2014, which was a finalist for both the National Poetry Series and the Yale Series of Younger Poets. Her writing has appeared in numerous publications, including Pank Magazine, Indiana Review, The Collagist, and The Best New Poets 2010 Anthology. Eugenia earned her MFA in creative writing from Sarah Lawrence College, where she was awarded the Thomas Lux Scholarship for her dedication to teaching creative writing, demonstrated through her workshops with incarcerated youths and with Brooklyn High School students. Eugenia has won awards from Poets and Writers Magazine and Rattle, and has received fellowships from Kundiman and the Asian American Literary Review. She serves as the poetry editor of Kartika Review. Born in Chicago and raised in Southern California, Eugenia lives and writes in New York City. Eugenia's love of difficult questions, her interest in challenging the narratives embedded in human experience, and her wry humor make her poems wonderfully, wonderfully complicated.
Thomas Lux wrote about blood sparrows and sparrows. This book went through me like a blue lightning strike, part lyric, part narrative, and always alive, unflinchingly alive. Please help me to welcome Eugenia Lee. Um, thank you so much for having us in this beautiful, beautiful space. Um, I will begin by reading a poem called Contrition with Liquor. Bad nights were my arms smashing into you, gavels to a fishbowl. Flinging glasses at your head meant another Wednesday. We tumbled through months of this, me passed around like a wet sacrament, you bridled like a good altar boy. You'd unleash sunset strip from my liver, flush my mouth in sinks of cold light. You taught me how to spit, so I spit enough nails to fix you right on top of Jesus. I was too slurred to see you were too human to unhang yourself, and Jesus too crippled beneath you to help. Um, it's been such a joy to travel with Kathy and Sally, and it was actually a huge privilege to have yesterday off and to explore Baltimore a little bit because um, starting today, for the next six days, we have a reading every night, and so I'm a little anxious about that, but I think it'll be okay because I have these two with me. God stalked me on Marion Avenue. He said, you can't fix it. Then, I can't either. That morning, my ceiling lamp had ripped from its cord. Even after I welded the fragments with duct tape, everything felt cracked like your $500 glasses I smashed that winter. So I thought, if I couldn't fix that, what the hell am I doing piecing together your eyes, our crumbling kisses? So I didn't question God. Sometimes God wants to be understood. Sometimes God hates his perfect grammar, his pretty universe, so he'll pluck a butterfly of its left wing. Call it art. He'll turn from a hurricane, say, it wasn't me. If artists were created in his image, how often does God abandon his mistakes? The day I stopped talking to you, I said nothing to him, too. I cursed my entire drive home. I littered the freeway with fistfuls of tissues while God shuffled his God feet and pretended not to see. Since Kathy was brave and wrote, uh, read a poem that she hasn't read on this tour so far, I decided to do the same. This is called The Deposition. All I recall from 1991, a stairwell sprouts from a cafeteria to a playground. Jesus sits at the bend. As blobs of children rumble ahead, I turn to ask if he'd like company. I'm all right, Jesus says. Go have fun. What does it mean that I remember dreams and not real life? I was born with a black hole in my brain. The first time I noticed the hole, I was 12. 
In the back office of a glorified daycare, I said nothing until the skittish social worker admitted, yes, that's a two-way mirror, and behind it, a thousand suits are whittling your words to knife your father's spine in court. Later that day, my mother shook me, screaming, why did you lie? Why didn't you tell her he beat you across the head? I stared at her. Who did what? Black hole. Last night, the oncologist reduced grandpa's morphine drip to let my sister tilt the phone to a lucid ear. 500 miles away, I rehearsed my breaths. I pictured his sunken chest, plastic tubes linking his lungs to my grandmother's prayers. When did I last see him? I remember grandpa everywhere, feeding us, but sometimes I remember him not at all, not even his face. Within the hour, my sister called back to say he died. But first, he opened his eyes. My still-life childhood crumbles like a photograph brittle in the fists of an arsonist. We get 1,000 words per burning photograph, yet this is all I've got. My mother's kneeling shrieks, my father's voice full of boils, my sister's flinching, my wincing, and now, cracking at the edge of my frigid Brooklyn rooftop, I hear all of us blaring from that black hole. Upon living with a man newly released... A friend watches me spoon a soggy chunk of my childhood and fling it somewhere between my Brooklyn sink and California. Her thoughts break as if to judge the remains of a six-car pileup or the sink jammed with crayon drawings of my father in jail. Father, unconscious on bedding of stationery marked with my name. Father stick figure twisted and red. Fathering, father fingering baloney greased with the spit of a guard. Father's mouth gorged with sores. Father's music stripped from his lungs. Father's eyes swollen with apology to my mother, whose garden grove apartment reeks of apathy. Her boyfriend's roses. I sew together syllables about trauma, a poem about what war gifts to its witness. Silence. My words gurgle with curdled blood, my mother's old bruises. My friend who pops therapy like candy hounds me to see someone. But how could I wreck another human being with the shrieks of my father's wars? Sometimes, when the night is blank, I beat the new moon with my crumpled drawings. She collects my abuse in her belly, waxes until she, pregnant with rotten paper, empties my anguish into the sky. Um, it's funny, because I wrote that poem quite a long time ago, and um, now I'm a very big proponent of therapy. <laughs> Just saying. This next poem... Um, is called Every Hair on Your Head, and I wrote it the day that Mark Linkus, the musician behind the band Sparkle Horse, committed suicide. He walked into an alleyway um, near his home, and he shot himself in the heart. And the poem begins with an epigraph from his song, Hundreds of Sparrows, and it goes, Every hair on your head is counted. You are worth hundreds of sparrows. The day you pushed a bullet through your heart, 
the length of a day on earth shortened by a millionth of a second. That same day, a NASA satellite captured an image of a dust storm. Chile withstood its 130th aftershock in a week, and I glimpsed a bird twitching on the floor of a Brooklyn metro station. Its eyeballs bulged as if to literally absorb the ocular world, and I shuddered away. For hours, I saw that flinching creature in my mind. I saw hundreds of similar birds shimmering into the station to lie next to it, a quilt of silvery bodies tiled wing to wing. On good days, I want to be saved. Most days, I want every savior in our hell so they'll know torment in the bloodstream, death's whistling, ceaseless, blurring the cleanest heartbeats. My first time, I was 13. I tested five pills. My stomach barely ached. I ate ramen, lived, solved math problems. But for days before that, I envisioned my body smeared inside out, a swarthy, dazzling canvas. What I wouldn't give to graze that silence. Did you do it standing up or crouching? Which was the bigger surprise, the gun punching or the angel catching you? Mother asks whether I have ever wanted to kill myself. The question, gentle, startlingly unhesitant, needles into the child I keep cuffed to a cell inside me. I decide not to lie. Then she decides also not to lie. She makes me promise. I make her promise. And another sun sinks into its Pacific bed and another sun elsewhere kicks awake the flocks hymning for the god who flickers on my secular lips. I have two more poems for you, and this poem is called Selah, and Selah is a Hebrew word um, that doesn't have an exact English definition, but it roughly means, let those with eyes see, let those with ears hear. Selah. When the sky unhinges, how will we survive? Who will extract the cancers from our lips, the bombs from our arteries? When we make delirious love in the closets of our small, love-starved God, may he honor our passion, forgive our poisons. May he unplug our churches, fling every cracked bulb back into the sky, and with each retinseled constellation, may he grow like a hot organ. May he watch us come, come to understand worship, that to worship is to survive, is to be wholly human, wholly gripping the other hand. And this is my final poem. Thank you for being such an attentive crowd. Somewhere in the city with her slip-proof shoes and apron, our mom locates an angel tall as miles. 
Mom pushes up her sleeves and, at the angel's nod, sprints to the back of the angel, grabs a fat sheaf of wing, its feathers thick as ropes, and she climbs and climbs. Every night she climbs. And every night she returns, flakes of holy in her hair. She returns, work shirt wet with angel drench, to a bedroom of crumbs, half-eaten margarine and jam sandwiches my small sisters and I assembled on the carpet. She is grateful we ate something. Then, her ear to our mouths, mom listens for sleep before launching her secret lullaby. Her sturdy hands on our foreheads, her prayers pouring over us like torrents of wild comets, and we are so entirely awake. Three little girls, good at pretending, toughened from having to have been small adults before mom came home. Years later, the day my sister's car spins across six freeway lanes, then stands upright, unbent, my sister shaken and unbruised, I discover a fleet of little angels on their knees cultivating a humble garden in my bedroom. I realize then that our mom must have come home with armloads of them. She must have begged for these little angels, collected them from God like tip dollars. Or maybe they tumbled out on their own, out of her infinite tongues, as we found rest beneath her desperate whispers. Thank you so much. Um, okay, so thank you so much. This has just been really wonderful to listen to, all three of you. Um, at this point, I'd like to ask um, the poets if they could sit up um, at the front table, and we're going to do just a little bit of Q&A. And um, after the Q&A, there will be some closing poems, and then there will be a little time to buy books and Oh, and um, I just wanted to mention that we're recording um, this evening for a podcast. Uh, so we welcome your questions. Um, maybe if, if one of the poets could try to repeat the question, it will um, ensure that uh, people listening to the podcast will understand what the question was. So anyone want to get us started? Mm-hmm. Who takes the most? <laughs> we were just asked who takes the most photos because we were taking photos of each other during the reading. I would say, uh, is this okay? I would say that it's Eugenia because um, she's our social media master and also our pick stitch master. <laughs> I, I did have a all three or each of you three have wonderful voices that are quite different from one another Mm -hmm. and so you're touring and listening and probably talking in the car do you see any merging or helping one another or or influence how's that Um, yesterday we had lunch um in Baltimore, and we we haven't talked directly about what our voices have been, but um, maybe early on when Eugenia and I read in New York, I think um, we did discover each other and discovered that um, we write about similar topics, but our voices are entirely different. Um, 
And I think what we discovered is that um, we have different strengths. Like, I am very good at applying for jobs and cover letters, and Sally is not, for example. Like, she, well, sorry, Sally. I suck, you guys. <laughs> Um, and, but, um, Sally's very good at residencies, applications, and journals, and I am not, and, uh, Eugenia has never, like, gone to a residency, but she's very good at the journals as well. So there's, there, there are different, uh, what you call po-biz, um, strengths and weaknesses that we have. So I think that is, like, uh, that is an example of, um, the kinds of conversations and, support that we give to one another. I, I have a sense that our writing practices are just very separate and, and um, that we don't really influence each other exactly. I mean, other than contending with big ideas. I think we talk about, um, you know, Sally was talking about how when she writes what she's most Part of what she's most interested in is um, language, and now she's um, the series that she's writing is very politically motivated, and that is um, something entirely her own. Although I'm interested in that, I don't know if I could ever, you know, even attempt to write a Sally poem. I don't think so, or write a Eugenia poem. I, I think our voices have um, kind of developed on their own in a separately while we're we we still. Um, support one another yeah um i think performance wise though we oh, yeah. tend to influence each other a little bit because we have such different styles at the podium um for example i'm very bad at the banter in between poems whereas kathy and sally can you know talk of a storm and they will tell you all kinds of crazy stories so i make a very concerted effort to come up with like small tidbits that might be interesting to some poor person sitting in the audience um and i know that kathy um Usually, I didn't gesture, gesture as much today, but I, I usually like to gesture as I read, and Kathy has been trying to gesture more. So when we were reading for the yeah. Young Writers Workshop um, for the kids, she did one poem almost entirely in body motion, yeah, where yeah. she just did all these gestures to kind of practice, and it was great. Yeah, but I'm shy. My body be shy. So yeah. <laughs> Oh, and the question was, do our <laughs> voices and styles ever merge um, because we're on this crazy road trip together, um, this road trip tour? Obviously, yes. obviously, you spend a lot of time on what you do. What are, what are your interests otherwise? Hmm. Uh, probably sounds like a simplified question, but you have careers or something that really intrigues you or is this pretty much your your, your main couple call on life? Okay, the, the question is do we have uh, other interests and um, uh, careers uh, aside from poetry? I mean, I was a teacher for many years, but I taught high school English, and then um, I taught... I've had many odd jobs, but I think um, ultimately my... Um, at a certain point in my life, I, I decided to make poetry my priority, and I've made the jobs um, support that. So, you know, babysitting and, you know, uh, interning at a publishing house, and then also... Um, um, driving aerospace parts and <laughs> so yeah a, a variety of odd jobs to just support my poetry life um, 
I think I do have other interests. I mean, I, I have an interest in graphic design. I have an interest in, um, you know, counseling and therapy, those sorts of things. But, um, you know, I get to do those things in small ways. Um, um, up until very recently, I was an arts administrator with a full-time job, um, which means I just, like, you know, input information into a database and <laughs> did those sorts of things. And uh, I currently am, uh, you know, another... I'm an arts administrator for an Asian-American poetry nonprofit. So that's where my path is right now, but I can see myself doing whatever it takes to support my poetry life. Um, and... Similarly, I've also had lots of odd jobs. We were just talking about this the other day, that my first job at age 15 was to work in a, um, a golf shoe warehouse, and, um, and it has evolved since then. But um, after my MFA, I was ghostwriting nonfiction books for a while, so I was writing business books for people. Um, and then eventually, when that started to take over my life, I quit that to become an assistant at an investment firm full-time so that I could work on submitting my manuscript and... Um, that's what I was doing for the last three years. I quit in order to go on this book tour since it paid off and gave me the energy to help this come about. Um, and in the fall, I'll be going to um, a PhD program in creative writing at the University of Illinois at Chicago um, to pursue further creative writing, hopefully some nonfiction, but um, still mainly poetry. Mm -hmm. um, I do have other interests um, in terms of writing. I'm interested in fiction writing and um, like nonfiction, creative nonfiction. Um, and um, I think that prose and poetry as, as genres, they're a little bit too often separated, um, um, especially in the context of MFA programs. Um, as for a career, I've spent the past three years um, teaching as a lecturer at Cornell University. So um, this past year, I taught a class about um, um, Asian American literature and escapism and science fiction and nerds. Um, <laughs> um, and, and, and I got to, you know, show my students, like, these animated films, like, uh, like uh, Hayao Miyazaki and Satoshi Kon, um, and, like, basically things that I, like, was a huge nerd about in high school and... Um, and so, I mean, I got, uh, my 17-year-old self would have never guessed, you know, in a billion years that I'd be, you know, teaching Samurai X to <laughs> Cornell University freshmen, holding them hostage to my nerdy um, obsessions. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it happened, like, randomly, I guess. <laughs> so, <laughs> there we go. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you, everybody. Um, so I guess I have two sort of generic questions. Um, the first is, what do you view the poetic form of poetry enabling you, you to do or mm -hmm. um, to express that other sort of media's, media don't do? Because sort of one of, I sort of picked up on the ways in which poetry work to sort of explore human, humans or humanity in our poems and how to sort of like obliquely through different types of creatures like these, like and so on. Um, Kathy, in your poetry, the way in which you talk about trauma and the way it's reanimated in ordinary life, but also can be related to differently through that tiny moments of hope. And in Eugenia, the sort of ambivalence around the sacred, um, mm -hmm. trying to navigate sort of like a, a secular life that's still plugged very much into the spiritual. And so I'm sort of wondering along those lines what 
poetry enables you to talk about in those in, along those lines. And I guess the second question is um, the three of you are all um, affiliated with Kumi, right? Mm -hmm. An Asian American collective around mm -hmm. poetry, and I'm sort of wondering what you view as sort of like maybe distinctively Asian American about your poems. I wish you could have heard that question because it was so articulate and eloquent. Um, so the question was, I'm going to uh, briefly, <laughs> briefly uh, paraphrase. Uh, so the question was, what, um, what does poetry as a genre enable you to do that maybe perhaps other, other um, forms of expression does not? Um, and then the second question was, um, um, how do you your, express your Asian Americanness through through your work? Okay. I think um, poetry is very helpful for me because um, you get to play a lot with space and the way that the um, text is structured. And I have I, I I grew up being told that I was not allowed to tell my story and. Um, my father was actually a pastor when I was growing up, but he was also a very violent person. And so um, I, I lied about everything that my family experienced until I was in college. And I think because of that, I still have a hard time expressing myself or being very open about my feelings or about my work in general. And so I, I've, I've noticed that um, in poetry, you get to tell the story not only through the text, but also through the way that the poem is shaped. Like in the poem about how um, you know my brain is made up of black holes or whatnot, there are lots of holes in the text itself, and I feel like it helps me to visually um, convey what what I'm what I don't necessarily am what I'm necessarily not able to convey through my words, and that's why I think I prefer poetry. I think, go ahead, Sally. Okay, um, so I had that question myself for a while. I kept asking my, myself, like, you know, what, what does poetry give that other medium, other, other types of media cannot? Um, and for a while, I was being cynical about it and just thinking, well, nobody reads poetry, so, like, what's the point, you know? Um, but then I guess I, I answered it for myself when um, I, I went to this uh, festival um, run by this um, organization called the Asian American Writers Workshop um, back in the fall. And Kathy was there, actually. So we, we were in this poetry booth, um, um, where we just where we just wrote poems for whoever came up to us and asked us um, to write something for them. And I remembered I got like some girl came up to me asking me to write a poem for her boyfriend, and I was like, "What? I don't know him." Um, but then, but then there was this other um, there was this young woman who um, came up to me, sat down, and said, "You know." So I'm going through a very tough time in my life right now. My father just passed away last year. Um, she was very young, like 21. Um, and, you know, she, she hadn't finished college yet. And she was just going through a really, really um, tough time. And she mentioned to me that she, um, she felt very pent up. Maybe, maybe that's similar to what Eugenia was saying, she was feeling very pent up. She wasn't, um, she was feeling 
that the world has kind of transformed and the way she lived could never be the same and there was no way, no outlet that she could feel um, comfortable in anymore. So I, I, I don't know. I just wrote her something very, like, very random and I, I, I knew that it couldn't really do any justice to her um, situation. But... Um, um, she she sent me an email. I, I just gave her my email and said you can you can contact me anytime. So um, she sent me an email and we ended up um, meeting again in the East Village and um, and I realized that um, there is a lot more to her story and I had no idea you know that like that like my tiny poem could do anything. But 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 what it did it was that it opened her up to me in a way that she hadn't opened up to anyone that, you know, surrounded her in her life. And I, I thought that that was immensely powerful um, to, to, to be able to have, have this stranger, this young girl, just share her story with me and to trust me with that story because um, there were a lot of people who wanted, you know, her to do this for them, but... but she chose not to. She chose to keep to herself. And, and she kind of chose to open herself up a lot to a stranger and to trust that stranger just because of this, like, small poem and that this, this small poem could resonate with her and her experience. And I, like, personally, I hadn't experienced that kind of loss, that kind of grief, but I tried to, you know, express it through metaphor and somehow it resonated and somehow it connected and um, I thought I felt that that was kind of an instance where I recognized like this is what poetry can do um, that like another another form of expression can, can, may not be able to do um. Um, so I, like Eugenia and um, others, um, kind of grew up with uh, silence. So, you know, in my household, it was, you know, um, even even the silence when I'm talking about, like, the representation of the Vietnam War as not being something that is that I could visibly see around me in pop- popular culture, my parents' stories weren't really um, um, being represented, or if they were, then maybe other like an American audience wasn't quite hearing it. So I think that was a, a, an impulse um, that poetry to me was like um, against silence in some ways. And I think um, another thing is I read that, um, so June Jordan has a quote that poetry is, you know, the maximum impact in the fewest number of words. And I think that poetry has um, an impact that, um, in a way, fiction is more sprawling, and um, the essay you, you can contend with more in certain ways. But sort of the distillation of um, of emotion or image, I think that for me is what poetry offers. And aside from that, I think the way that I I, I used to feel dissatisfaction that I couldn't get it all in one poem, but over time I felt that like. Um, that I could t- write poems that talk to each other, and the the gaps that are there are sort of they're they're these spaces for echoing. So I find that poetry gives me the spaces for that echoing to happen, um, and that is different from fiction or 
you know, prose because like, those gaps are often filled in. I mean, they're, they're still gaps, but they're, they're different somehow. So I think that's kind of, what was the second question? Was there a second one? Um, the second question was about... Oh, Asian-Americanness. Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, oh. <laughs> I don't know if... I, I, as, as a literature, Asian-American literature, I don't think that there is a singular... I think it's a... Um, it's, you know... Um, it's, it, there are multiple voices that, com that combine to create this field, but this field is constantly shifting and changing as more and more voices are being added to it. I don't think there's any kind of singular um, notion of what Asian-American poetry should look like, but certainly um, writing my family's stories as people who come from you know, Vietnam, um, that is very powerfully in... You know, I, I wouldn't shy away from saying that this book talks, you know, talks about an Asian-American identity, yeah. Um, so, so with this Asian-American question, I feel like, you know, um, um, I always answer it with um, talking about this class that I taught um, at Cornell a couple years ago, and um, it's called New Asian-American Narratives, um, and the goal of the class was to kind of dismantle this notion of, um, of you know, like an Asian-American poet or an Asian-American writer has these topics, this scope to write about, and, um, and they should exist in the limits of that scope. Um, and because, because so, so often in literature, you, you think about the canon and you think about, you know, who is, who is visible in the canon. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when you think of Asian-American, you often jump to, you know, Maxine Hong Kingston, Amy Tan. Um, and, and they operate on kind of a, kind of a similar, um, not, not a similar, like, writing style, but, like, topics, you know, just thinking about, like, how to present um, my culture to to, you know, this audience. Um, but what I tried to do with this um, course is select texts where, um, where Asian-American writers were taking risks, a lot of risks, a lot of, um, a lot of do, doing a lot of, like, weird things. So I, I, I called the class a New Asian-American Narratives, but I, I think of it more as, like, Crazians 101. <laughs> it's, like, crazy... Like, um, really, um, like, I, I taught a book by Charles Yu called How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe. It's about a dude who discovers a time machine, tries to look for his father who invented the time machine, and then got ate by the time machine. Um, and then I taught a uh, text by Banu Kapil, this um, South Asian um, uh, poet who writes, who has this obsession with, like, cyborgs and, um, and also... Um, like feral children. So she wrote a book about um, these wolf girls who were discovered in India in the, in the 1920s. And um, I also taught a text by Lin Din, um, a, a Vietnamese American. Uh, he's a poet and a fiction writer. Who, um, and he wrote these um, um, very like sardonic, very satirical um, stories of um, uh, Vietnam um, during the Vietnam War, but 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 presented in a way that was very like it was very fresh and transgressive, and it it, it dismantled a lot of you know the the um, the the dominant narratives that we that we see on a day to day basis, not not just in in media but in in literature. Um, 
So, so I'm always thinking about ways to kind of, um, or, or I, I think of Asian American not as like a term that defines um, a, a group of writers, but, but more as a, a, a general um, kind of term that describes multiplicity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also, you know, like, um, that's kind of what I discovered at Kuniman. When I first went into Kuniman, um, I was 21 years old. I didn't really know anything. Um, I, I wrote, like, a few poems, and I thought I had to write poems about, um, about you know, my parents and the Cultural Revolution and things like that, um, which, you know, like, those could be my topics, but they don't have to be all of my topics, you know. So that's what I kind of learned in, in at Kuniman was that, like, I can really expand my voice and not have it be defined by my culture and not that like being defined by my culture is a is necessarily a bad thing but it's not everything it's not my whole story it's not you know like my whole human um experience so Mm Oh, I'm sorry. I know there are more questions, and this is so interesting. I would like to let it continue, but um, I think we'll have to save the other questions for afterwards so that um, you guys have time to read a closing poem, which you can do from right there at the table if you would like. Um, but thank you. Those were wonderful questions. Who wants to go first? I guess I'll go first since I went first in the reading. Okay, so I'm closing with this poem. Um, It's called The Bullies. In 1997, the days were long, the sun bloodshot, and Mountain View, California smelled like duck shit. Those days, everyone's mind was a sex tape on repeat. Her suit rumors clogged the shower drains. When young girls disrobed together in a locker room, Rancor smelled like petunias. The whole stink glowed with mutant love. In 1999, tremors erased my larynx. Voicemails flooded with cackles, inboxes sneered. Late afternoons, my legs greened Granny Smith style, and I believed when they called me Leviathan. Ovoid girl, black hair, burnt skin, snaggletooth, and sexless ruin. I saw tumors grow the size of California. Nobody spat, only suggested. Give this up, shucked each desire. Evenings, when I was finally free, I I saw crushed stars roll into the thistle field. On that pungent summit, I was a gutter, a bountiful gutter. I collected clean rain. I was a passageway to the open shore. Um, This is Gardenia, my hopeful poem. O love and fern and sun-spotted holly, O great vase painted with shadows, how must I attend to my life? I was once a white gardenia, pistol and stamen, my many-fingered petals, in the center a spot of mustard like a stain on a napkin. 
I, bird-boned and red-breasted, marked with a spot on my chest. Oh, foxgloves, white as a wedding dress, bird of a single color, I too can change. Daphne becomes a laurel and is saved from rape. I can crown myself with my own life. We called it the year of birthing. God handed me a trash bag bloated with feathers. Turn this into a bird, he said. He threw me a bowl of nails and make with this a new father. God gave some people whole birds, ready-made fathers with no loose bolts. The rest of us received crude nests, used mothers. I banged the nails into two planks of wood and marched around a church screaming, Father, Father, until friends appeared, hammering the scraps they were given to make something of themselves. When beaten hard enough, some people scamper into corners sorted with similar beaten people. Others of us, the stubborn, unbreakable humans, weld our wounds to form tools. Then we spend our days mending bent humans or wiping the humans mired by all the wrong fingerprints. The morning the first baby was born in our circle of friends, we hovered over this child who, unlike us, was born whole. You were given a good mother, we said, a good father. Each one of us prayed. We scrubbed our soiled hands before we held his swaddled body. Mm. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kathy, Eugenia, and Sally, for your wonderful poetry and all of your distinctive voices. It has really been a, a, a transforming evening. Mm -hmm. um, and I know you talked about how poetry opened you. I always feel that, that this evening it's like being unclosed. It's an unclosing mm -hmm. of some sort. And I, it's like you leave this room. So mm -hmm. it really, really wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, but before we leave... Dan, to, to get back to the real world. Um, we do have evaluations in the back that we would love it if you didn't mind taking a few minutes to fill them out. It helps us, you know, kind of give information on how we're doing to um, our, for ourselves and as well as for others, you know, how, the, how everyone's enjoying it. And um, also, as I mentioned earlier, there is a sign-up sheet if you'd like e to put your email in to get information about any upcoming programs that we will be having. Um, we would love it if you do that. And um, Oh, and most importantly, in the back, we'll be selling all three books by all three poets. Um, so please come back, and we'll, we'll take care of selling those to you. And thank you again for coming to the Pratt, and thank you again... Kathy, Eugenia, and Sally for being here with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.